0: Mr. President, Mr. Speaker,
1: members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December
0: seventh, nineteen forty-one,
1: a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America. ...was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan.
0: Hello and welcome to today's bonus episode, and it's the attack on Pearl Harbour on the 7th of December 1941, which brought America into World War II. Hitler declared war four days later, and the rest is history. Alan Bardos joins to discuss the build-up of antagonism between the US and Japan, the attack itself, the intelligence failures, the military figures involved, and we talk about the template for the Japanese, a little-known British victory in the Mediterranean a year before. Links are in the show notes. Plenty more great history to come, and next it's Gordon returning to discuss great British commanders and World War I also-rans. Please do give a five-star rating if you can bear to. But until then, I'm going to hand you over to me talking Pearl Harbour with Alan Bardos. Alan Bardos, welcome. Great to have you on.
1: Thanks, Ollie. It's good to be here.
0: So I wanted to get you on, Alan, because I was very keen because your new novel which has been out for around about a month now. And I was very keen to get you on because the subject that it deals with is one that I haven't covered yet. And it is a fascinating one, a crucial one. And that is the attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese in 1941, December the 7th, 1941, a date that will live in infamy, Alan. Alan.
1: That's
0: right, (laughs) Willie. Many of the listeners will know where that quote comes from, but Alan, you can clear that up for those who aren't sure. But I wanted to start off, I thought it would be helpful because from a British perspective, World War II begins 1939, the Germans invade Poland. That's obviously not the case for the Americans. But I wanted to go back a little bit further as well in the 1930s because the US and Japan... Our rivals in the Pacific, well before the attack in on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Is that is that right, Alan?
1: Yeah, there was definitely friction between the two in the, in the Pacific in the lead up. There were incidents in China in 1937 when the Japanese invaded China. There were the Japanese bombed an American riverboat. I mean, a lot of people say that the Second World War actually started in 1937 with the Americans in conflict with the Japanese there. But um, I mean, obviously that was just a, a border incident, but yes.
0: And so we're getting these, this friction in the sort of latter part of the 1930s. Was there any kind of diplomatic efforts um, to maybe tone things down? Because the Americans domestically weren't really that keen on a conflict, were they? Which is, explains partly why the war doesn't begin for the Americans when the Germans invade Poland.
1: The isolationist lobby was very strong in America at, at the time, but there was a lot of outrage in America about the Japanese invasion. It was a very brutal conflict in China. So they imposed a lot of diplomatic sanctions, which by the end of 1941 were crippling the Japanese ability to empire build and to wage war. The Navy only had a, a year's worth of oil left. So it was two eye by then. It was either back down in China or, or to come out fighting and... They obviously chose to come out fighting. I mean, there were dubs in the Japanese government, uh, but they'd been largely replaced or by, by that time. So the militarists under Tojo had basically taken power and were on the road to war.
0: So that's interesting. So uh, there are a lack of resources. The Japanese are suffering from a lack of resources because of American sanctions.
1: That's right. They had no natural resources of their own, or very little. Uh, a growing population... And they weren't able to feed it. So they they wanted to expand. And they also felt under threat. You know, they were surrounded by the French Empire, the British Empire, the Russians, and the Americans were obviously in the Philippines. So they felt, you know, they didn't want to go the same way as Malaya, for instance. So they were empire building to try and expand. But at, at the same time, they were reliant on America for their oil and iron ore and basic war materials for waging war which when the Americans cut it off, they felt they had no choice but to go and get them themselves, which were all in Southeast Asia and Malaya. So they conceived this massive plan to invade Southeast Asia and take them, which obviously France were unable to defend Indochina, French Indochina, because of the they'd been invaded by Germany. And Britain were fighting a desperate war against the Germans in the Mediterranean and the North Atlantic. They were not really in a position to defend their Eastern possessions. So the Americans were their main problem, which is why they attacked Pearl Harbor to destroy the American fleet. It's a rearguard action.
0: So, okay, that's interesting. But the Hawaiian Islands, or Hawaii itself, is, if one looks at a map, it's, it's, it's actually extraordinary how far away it is from the west coast of the United States. And also then the, the Japanese fleet that makes the attack it is able to approach... I mean, this was a surprise attack. Americans didn't see it coming. Is that no. right?
1: Well, they'd had warnings, but they thought they'd be attacked in you know, the Philippines or Guam, those sort of places that are a lot nearer to Japan. Because as you say, Hawaii was also 4,000 miles or so from Japan. So they didn't see the attack in Hawaii coming. So Alan,
0: Pearl Harbor, so what, it's 4,000 miles from Japan... But it's and it's two and a half thousand miles from this coast of California. That's right. And it's a surprise to the Americans. And you've and you've mentioned there've been warnings. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about is there are some who theorise that the U.S. government was aware that the attack was going to come and that they allowed it to happen in order to you've mentioned the isolationist lobby in the us domestically and so the roosevelt government and and i think the theory being winston churchill had some kind of uh, knowledge as well allow the attack attack to proceed in order to you know persuade the american people that america should join the war on the side of britain
1: well the obvious answer to that is what why would if they wanted to join Britain in the fight against Germany, why would they let Japan attack them in the Pacific and then end up fighting a two-front war? I mean, if they wanted to engineer something, surely they would have done it in the North Atlantic where the US Navy were pretty much already fighting the U-boats. They could have done something there. I mean, it's just because Hitler decided to um, declare war that uh, they ended up fighting Germany as well. I mean, obviously there were warnings because they'd broken, the Americans had broken the Japanese diplomatic codes. They hadn't broken the naval ones at this stage, but the diplomatic codes. So they knew that, that there was something going on. But because the Japanese diplomatic service were largely dubs, there was a lot of distrust between the Japanese government and the diplomats. They didn't give them a lot of information about what they were planning. So the Americans who were breaking their codes didn't actually have a great deal of information. They knew, you know, for example, on the 7th of December, that an ultimatum was going to be delivered at one o'clock on the 7th of December, which was dawn in Hawaii, which was when the Japanese, the planes were going to attack the fleet. But that was all the information that they had. In the lead up to that, they knew that the Japanese were pretty much winding down their negotiations because there was a peace delegation in Washington at the time trying to get the sanctions lifted against Ch- Japan. Um, and reach some kind of compromise but there was no way they could reach a compromise because the Americans weren't going to drop the sanctions until they left the Japanese left China and the Japanese were unwilling to do that and they'd issued war warnings but they were very vague and um, it was just you know we expect there might be an attack somewhere like the Philippines but there was no mention of Hawaii so when the attack came in Hawaii there was a massive shock because they completely underestimated the Japanese and their ability to launch an attack like that. And it was so new. Nobody had ever done a carrier strike on that scale against the hub. I mean, the British had done something similar in Toronto, but that was just with one carrier and about 20 aircraft. This was six carriers and 350 aircraft, which was inconceivable to the Americans and to anyone else, really. Also because as we mentioned, it was 4,000 miles from the Japanese mainline. Mainland. It was a very complicated logistical exercise that to refuel their ships in the middle of the ocean. And obviously, they just weren't expecting it. So they were caught very much by surprise because they didn't patrol the, the northern approaches with aircraft, uh, for example, which would have found the fleet. They, I mean, they'd set up radar, but the radar wasn't manned after half past seven in the morning. Why is that? Well, it was just new. General Short, who was the um, American... General in charge of defending Hawaii, you know, didn't really believe in it. Thought it was a newfangled gadget.
0: So, w- so what we use the naked eye instead?
1: Well, they didn't even think that. You know, <laughs> I mean, they had they thought the main threat would come from saboteurs because there was a massive Japanese population in Hawaii. I think it was the biggest outside of Japan, and they thought that there would be a, you know threat from saboteurs. So they had all their aircraft were lined up in the runway. They didn't have fuel and tanks or bullets. Because they didn't want to leave anything explosive for the saboteurs to help them damage the planes. So they had, a, and the anti aircraft guns weren't properly manned. They didn't have a lot of ready use ammunition. So it was a, they were basically a sitting duck, really. So there was no real preparation. They, although these war warnings had been issued, they hadn't actually done anything about it, really, because they didn't think it applied to them. You know, they were sitting in a tropical paradise, thousands of miles away from the Japanese mainland and they thought the war would be in the southeast asia so that's the war they were preparing for they were doing training for that that's what they thought they would be fighting so when the japanese came over the horizon with aircraft they were completely taken by surprise
0: so the u.s pacific fleet which is stationed in pearl harbor and that's the headquarters of the pacific u.s pacific fleet isn't it
1: yeah, but it had only been there for a few months. Previously to that, it had been in San Diego on the American Pacific coast, and Roosevelt ordered it to be moved there as an implicit threat or tacit threat to Japan to keep them in check, which wasn't a popular decision with the Navy because the harbour wasn't ideal for them. Was a bit of a bottleneck and they didn't really have all the facilities they needed. Interesting.
0: Okay. So the Japanese fleet then that attacks, you mentioned it, six aircraft carriers. Uh, just re- really interesting to get an idea of the naval force that was steaming towards Pearl Harbour for the attack.
1: 350, uh, well, 353 planes attacked in two waves from these aircraft carriers. And it was a completely new and original idea. Unprecedented.
0: And so we've got six aircraft carriers, the aircraft, are these zeros? Is it dive bombers or they or are they using sort of more heavy bombers?
1: Well, yeah, well, they used the mix. Um, well, they had zeros with a fighter cover, um, but they were also torpedo planes and which they also used as level bombers, which dropped converted shells into bombs, which is one of them hit the USS Arizona in the magazine and blew it blew it up.
0: That's this extraordinary uh, photograph. I'll put a link in for the listeners to uh, to click on that because it's just this dramatic image of the Arizona that got hit in the magazine. Then
1: they, they dropped the bomb on it, and it just went. It was a lucky hit. They were just flung over and they hit it in the magazine. Which over a thousand American sailors died in the you know in seconds. Which well half of the entire casualties that they suffered on that day were killed in the Arizona. They were dive bombers as well. They did a variety of attacks designed to confuse the the, the gunners defending because the, they would attack um, dive bombing and level bombing and torpedo bombing. Obviously, so the torpedo bombers are very vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire because they have to fly at levels in a straight line fairly slowly. Otherwise, when they release a torpedo, it breaks when it hits the water. So they had to go in quite slowly, which made them an easy target to the anti-aircraft gunners. So um, they also then used... Dive bombers. Which the idea was, you know, combined attack to confuse the defending gunners. American so
0: you've gunners. got if you're if you're an um, anti-aircraft gunner, then you're trying to hit a fairly slow-moving, flying low to to drop the torpedo. But then at the same time, you've got to deal with a, a dive bomber as well.
1: That's right. Yes.
0: Uh, right. Okay. And so the battleships that were sunk by the Japanese. Because this is the thing that is interesting about the Pearl Harbor attack, in that it was so shocking and and surprising, as you've just illustrated. However, and they they do sink. You know, the Arizona is a battleship that sunk, and I think three others. What what are the losses that the Americans suffer?
1: And then we can get on but, to
0: whether whether we can look back today and see whether it was a success or not.
1: Well, they sank two battleships were completely destroyed. The Oklahoma, which capsized, and the Arizona, which blew up. And then there were six other battleships that were d- damaged to varying degrees. Overall, they um, sank and damaged 21 ships of different types and destroyed 200 aircraft on the ground, which were... Um, pretty much all the aircraft that they had on Hawaii. So it was a fairly significant defeat. I mean, in in minutes, they rewrote the whole balance of power in the Pacific because the Americans lost, you know, all their capital ships. But as I say, they um, they attacked in two ways, which were very effective. But there were suggestions that they should have done a third wave. But the Americans, by this time, obviously, their their anti-aircraft fire was intensifying. And um, Nagumo, the Japanese commander... uh, um, Nagumo, Naguma, yeah. He, um, he, de- he decided that they shouldn't launch a third wave because the longer they stayed where they were, the more chance there were of being discovered. They were worried about submarines and obviously the Americans launching a counterattack. Their carriers were still out on patrol. Um, and in fact, the USS Enterprise did try and hunt them down. After the attack, they returned to harbor. But the controversy for the Japanese is that the Naguma didn't launch a third wave which probably would have destroyed the USS enterprise because obviously it's one aircraft carrier against six and he didn't attack their um, dockyard facilities or their oil they had these massive oil farms hundreds of thousands of gallons of oil which if they'd destroyed all that crippled the americans ability to well repair their ships which they managed to do six of the damaged battleships were returned to service eventually and the oil that they didn't destroy was used to power the aircraft carriers and the ships that won the Battle of Midway. So it could have been a lot more decisive. I mean, a lot of people have suggested that they could have replaced the oil quite quickly, but Nimitz, who became the commander-in-chief of the US Navy, said that if they didn't have the oil, they would have had to have evacuated Hawaii. It would have been a Dunkirk in the Pacific because they would have been unable to defend it because their ships would have had no oil. So it could have been a lot more decisive Obviously, that's with hindsight and, you know, being able to look at the records and the analysis, which Nagumo didn't have, from his perspective, had achieved a stunning victory, which he had. It just the decisions he made in those few minutes could have affect, affected the rest of the course of the war in the Pacific. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you
0: by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot...
1: Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
0: So you have mentioned Toronto, which is a... Um Pearl Harbour on a much smaller scale in the Mediterranean. And this is something that features in your novel, um, Rising Tide, which the Pearl Harbour is the main subject of. And I just wanted to, um, your hero of, of Rising Tide, the stories around espionage and, and this kind of thing, was Toronto something that the Japanese were looking at and learning from? And were the Americans looking at that and learning from it either? Or any, was anyone learning from it?
1: Well, the Japanese definitely were. It didn't inspire the Pearl Harbor um, attack. They'd already been planning it for about a year before Toronto, but it was a, a proof of concept for them. Because obviously so it was such a new thing for aircraft flying from the carrier to attack a heavily defended harbour. And then Toronto, the British sank three battleships and damaged cruisers and a lot of facilities with 21 biplanes that were you know, went out with the Ark, but were reliable aircraft that their crews loved, the swordfish. And, yeah, within days of the attack, which changed the whole balance of power in the Mediterranean for a time, and then forced the Italians to move their fleet to Naples, which was a less strategically placed port, which didn't threaten the convoys in the Mediterranean so badly. Within days of that, the Japanese sent their ambass- uh, their naval attache from Berlin. He reviewed the scene of the attack and um, they also had a full delegation went to review the scene in April 1941 and they had very very detailed questions they asked the Italians, information they gathered which was sort of the inspiration for my book because my character, obviously Danny Nichols is um, in the Fleet Alarm in the beginning of the novel, takes part in the Toronto attack where he's injured and then he um, moves into naval intelligence, where he becomes discovers that the Japanese had an interest in um, in the Toronto raid, um, which based on a true story with a, a chap called Johnny Jebson, who worked for the Abwehr German intelligence. Who was his family had had contacts in the Far East through a trading company, and um, he escorted the Japanese around around um Italy looking at all these harbor defenses and specifically Toronto. And then he reported the the Japanese interest to the sko Popov, a friend of his, who was a British double agent. He was working for the Emperor as well. But he was also working for the British. He, his loyalties were to the British. And um he reported this back to British intelligence and he'd also been given a questionnaire. To, sorry, so he thought he'd say his his German handlers wanted him to um, go to America. He wanted him to go to Hawaii and gave him a list of questions that they wanted answered about America, and a third of that was all about Hawaii and the um, harbour defences in Hawaii. He reported that back to British intelligence, and, um, which is where I got my idea from, and he eventually went to um, America New York. He met, with the blessing of uh, British intelligence, and met um, Hoover the director of the FBI in New York, who um, didn't believe a word of what he told him and completely, completely uh, discounted his warning about the attack on Hawaii because Popov was a bit of a playboy, which partly was he contrived because that was his cover, you know, he was just nobody would take him seriously as a spy because he was a playboy, you know, organizing and drinking, and so which offended Hoover's Puritan sort of beliefs. He and also, he Hoover had a um, a policeman's attitude, I believe, is what they say. He just wanted to arrest people. He wasn't interested in intelligence or forming networks or using spies to get information. He just wanted to you know, arrest them with as much publicity as possible. So his interest in Popov was to use him to flush out German spies in America and help him catch spies. He wasn't interested in anything he had to say. I think also partly that was because... He thought it might be the British intelligence or British government. He was endorsed quite strongly by British intelligence, who quite rightly told him that he was one of their key agents, and he was very trustworthy and to believe what he had to say. So, I think Hoover basically thought that he was being used to endorse this information, which he had then pass on to Roosevelt to rubber stamp it to show to Roosevelt that he thought this was a credible threat. Whereas Heath probably uh, he believed that. Um, it could possibly be, you know, part, you know, the British espionage intriguing to try and drag America into the Second World War by telling them that there were threats when there weren't really threats. I mean, that was, I think, partly his perspective. He refused to let Popoff go on to Hawaii and basically just kept him languishing in in America for months, really, greatly endangering his cover. And in the end, Popov went back to um, Europe and played a key role in Operation Fortitude.
0: So I suppose all that involvement between Hoover, Popov and the shady, I I guess Hoover's, is this all add fuel to the fire of those who might think that there's a conspiracy behind the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor?
1: Possibly. I think um, that's never really been, but there were so many different things. It was such a catastrophic failure of intelligence or the American bureaucracy that, the main focus has always been on these, um, the, uh, on the decrypting of the Japanese diplomatic traffic because um, that's where people always say that they, they had secret information that they didn't share with Kimmel, the commander-in-chief of the American Pacific Fleet, which I think, as I say, that is a bit unfair because the information they had wasn't... They didn't have a great deal of information because there wasn't a great deal of information in the diplomatic... Codes, where they went down uh, where they went wrong and where um Kimmel who was villainized after the Pearl Harbor attack has always used to defend himself was the fact that they'd, they'd decoded all these information coming out they had a the Japanese had a spy called Yushikawa in in Hawaii who was basically monitoring the U.S. fleet and giving every day he was reporting to his superiors in Tokyo about the movement of the U.S. fleet it was basically his idea to attack on the Sunday, which is when the majority of the fleet was in everything he was reporting back to Tokyo he had to he did through commercial telegraph companies because the Japanese consulate didn't have its own telegraph and that was all being decoded by the Americans they were basically overwhelmed by they were decoding every you know every pretty much every Japanese consulate and diplomatic telegram so there was so much of it. They focused on the high high level stuff, which was the uh, Japanese delegation in Washington at the time, which were conducting peace negotiations with the American government, and um, they missed this whole goldmine of information, which was decoded, and it was they decoded it so effectively that Ishikawa used the American decrypts in his in his uh, memoirs. He quotes them extensively. But the problem is, despite the fact that they were decoded, they were all in Japanese, and they hadn't been translated. So they were just baskets and baskets of untranslated um, decoded messages in the Office of Naval Intelligence. And, you know, none of that was looked at. That information then obviously wasn't passed on to the front line, because if they'd looked at this, they would have seen that the Japanese were gathering information about the you know, m- movement of every ship in the US fleet, the harbour defences that had a grid of where every single ship was in Pearl Harbour, where the aircraft bases were, where they patrolled, when they patrolled. So they would have known that Pearl Harbour was a target. They were looking at it quite seriously and gathering a large amount of intelligence. But none of that information was passed on to Roosevelt or to Kimmel or General Short because they didn't look at it. They hadn't didn't collate it. It was just lying in baskets up until, you know, I don't believe any of it was really translated until after the attack. But there was also the American ambassador in Tokyo. He, he gave a warning of a possible attack. He had a, a contact in the Peruvian government who told him that the Japanese were planning to attack Pearl Harbor. And he reported that back and it, nothing ever happened. Uh, I assume it was just sort of dismissed as cocktail gossip. These kind of rumors were not uncommon, you know, in diplomatic circles. They just happened to be right. So there was all these warnings coming in, which were all ignored, which obviously feeds the conspiracy theory. I don't believe it was a conspiracy. I believe that they basically were just incompetent.
0: Yeah, more cock up than conspiracy.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was so such such a systemic failure that I don't believe one person could have orchestrated it. And that seems to be the majority of academic opinion anyway
0: i guess when the dust had settled what was the reaction of the americans were they looking at their fleet which has been you know okay it's not been destroyed but it's been a hole below the waterline if i can use a maritime metaphor what's their re- reaction is it oh my god you know this is a disaster or because within you mentioned the battle of midway that's june of 1942 that's six months later um just over six months later they win a stunning victory over the Japanese fleet.
1: That's right, and that was the turning point for the war. Well, as you said at the beginning, it was, a, the, I mean, Roosevelt said, um, I think the day after in, in the Congress, when he asked for de- you know for a declaration of war, that it was a date that would live in infamy. There was total anger and outcry in America. And most of that seemed to be focused on husband Kimmel, who was the um, commander in chief of the Navy and General Short, who was in charge of the army that were meant to protect the fleet while it was in port. They were verified. Kimmel received, you know, all kind of, loads of hate mail. Kimmel was charged with dereliction of duty, which, you know, for a career army officer, a naval officer, is like about the worst thing you could say to uh, be charged with, which I, I think is unfair, which obviously that's, you know, there's probably about eight congressional investigations and that sort of being overturned to errors of judgment, which I think you could make an argument that it was. Kimmel did make errors of judgment, but you could also argue that he made those decisions based on the information he had. If it had the whole picture, then he obviously would have made different decisions, but he was focused on fighting, you know, a conventional fleet ship to ship battle, which everyone thought would happen. That would be how the war was fought. they will say that you're always fighting the war from the previous war rather than the future war and um so he was focused on that and um he thought the only threat to hawaii would be from submarines attacking convoys and possibly um saboteurs if he had had you know the the americans had these um these amazing planes of catalinas which the the british at the time were using to great effect in the north atlantic but they had a range of about two thousand miles if he'd used those to patrol the northern approaches to Hawaii, they would have um, seen the fleet coming days in advance, probably. And um, But he didn't do those patrols because he didn't think there was any point. He'd, it would disrupt his training schedule. And he also argued that he didn't have enough planes because all his planes were given to the British on land lease. General Short, the army commander...
0: Who doesn't believe in radar.
1: That's right. And you fangled ideas his planes weren't flying dawn patrols obviously the day after Pearl harbour they all flew dawn patrols but they probably still do but they didn't before the attack and so they didn't have time the, the planes were completely caught their the air cover was caught by surprise the, the gunners were caught by surprise the, the whole thing was just a massive cock up really kim I think possibly he's got some questions to answer. Because also, as in now, they they were tracking the the Japanese ships. There was a, a team who did that through the radio transmissions. were tracking They always were tracking the Japanese ships, aircraft carriers, and they lost contact with three of the air the Japanese aircraft carriers that they were normally monitoring, and that's because they were. The the carriers were having radio silence because they were on their way to Hawaii to bomb it. And Kimon was knew about this. His head of intelligence reported it, told him, "Oh, yeah, there's three aircraft carriers out there. We don't know where they are." And he famously said, "Oh, so they could be coming around Diamond Head, which is part of Hawaii, and I, I wouldn't know about it." And it was told, "Yes, but you know, don't worry about it." They're probably just in port. We lose contact with them all the time. And obviously he he had been issued war warning. They just were really vague. And the, none of them mentioned Hawaii specifically. So he didn't really do a great deal to prepare the fleet for an air attack because he didn't know it was coming. To say that's the, the idea that they were going to be attacked, it was just inconceivable to them.
0: Yeah. And I suppose, is Kimmel replaced by Nimitz? That's right. Yes. It's really fascinating that the Japanese really kind of upturn naval doctrine in this attack on Pearl Harbor. And is Nimitz is a lot more prepared for this new kind of
1: warfare. He must be because he's just seen what the Japanese have done to his fleet. But yeah, the Japanese had, had to develop new ideas, new ways of fighting, because there'd been a, a treaty in nineteen twenty three in Washington which said that the Japanese fleet had to be smaller than the British and the Americans fleet. And they agreed to that at the time. So they had to look for different ways to even the balance. And aircraft were the obvious thing that they went for. And they developed aircraft under the terms of the treaty. They couldn't develop battleships. So they pioneered a whole new form of naval warfare. All the sides were looking at it, but it was was more sort of seen as a, a new idea, a novelty idea at the time. Until Toronto, which showed that it could carry a launched aircraft, could could have an impact and change a decisive impact.
0: Yeah. Toronto. So interesting, Toronto, because that's not something that I I wasn't aware of until I'd read your article about it um, that you'd written for us, which I'll put a link in for the listeners if they're interested, because this takes place in November 1940. You know, this and this is quite a stunning victory for the British in a period of the war. When there were very very few victories if any
1: that's right it's one of the one of the first British victories of the war and and it was a, a massive psychological effect I mean Hitler went ballistic and he sent a whole load, whole load of the Luftwaffe down to hunt down and destroy HMS illustrious which was a carrier that launched the attack and very nearly did destroy her she you know pursued all around the Mediterranean she went to um, Malta and was Bombs incessantly in Malta. Nicholas Montserrat, in um, the chaplain of Malta, writes a really uh, incredible. As part, I mean, it's a many stranded story, but it's a really incredible story when he talks about it in that book. But eventually, they managed to patch her up and sent her to America to be refitted because she'd pretty much decimated by the Luftwaffe.
0: Very angry man that Hitler. Yeah. This has been just uh, quite eye-opening, really, listening about the... I didn't realise this sort of massive intelligence failure and the reaction of the Americans and the actually quite impressive military tactics used by the the Japanese. It's just that they didn't follow through even further than they could have.
1: It could have been a very different outcome. The war in the Pacific could have lasted longer. I mean, the whole idea... Was to try and cause a stalemate. I mean, they knew they couldn't possibly defeat America, but they wanted to make it as hard as possible for them to counter attack after Pearl Harbor because I mean, obviously their fleet would have been destroyed. They would have had, it would have taken them years to recover, by which time they hoped they would have been fighting in Europe and wouldn't had the capacity or the will to fight them in the Pacific. They could have had all their natural resources of Southeast Asia expanded like they wanted to. And the Americans would have be been unable to respond.
0: Great stuff, Alan. Well, so um, th- it's the first in a trilogy, I think. Is that right? Yeah.
1: The next one's going to be in the Mediterranean invasion of um, Sicily and Italy. Bob's I'm only just starting that. So that might all change.
0: <laughs> great stuff, Alan. That's, well, this has been really interesting. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Ollie.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Plenty of great history to come, including World War One, British commanders, the Mafia, the Mau Mau uprising and much, much more. But in the meantime, thank you and good night.